Very good. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that heaven is our home, those who have placed their faith in you. And I'm thankful, Lord, that we can look forward to that day, that uh, we will be in your presence. And it's good to be reminded of that truth in song tonight. So uh, thank you for that. I pray that you'd bless this message, God, that you'd use it uh, to help us have a better understanding of your word. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, you may remember, we finished up chapter 7, and I uh, had us look at verses uh, 26 down through verse 28, and in those verses, the writer reminded us of who Christ was when he walked on this earth. He said that he was holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And when you think about who Christ is and what he was, what his nature was, the character and the integrity, of course, that he would have had as he lived on this earth, then truly it is amazing when he said in verse number 26, for such an high priest became us. To think that God in Christ, who was so much higher than us, would be willing to come and to humble himself and to take on the form of man that truly is an amazing thought, and it's something that we need to be reminded of from time to time, because if we're not reminded of it, we will lose sight of it, we'll not be as grateful for it as we ought, and we will then take it for granted. With the arrival of Christ and everything that he did and everything that it accomplished, I said last week, and I want to remind us again tonight, that allowed individuals to be saved to the uttermost. That allowed people to be saved completely and entirely. And it gives people the opportunity to not just know God, but to know him personally, to know him intimately, to have a wonderful, close, dynamic relationship with him. And if that does not excite you, then your spiritual life needs some attention. Amen. To think that you and I can have a close, personal, intimate relationship with God because of the work of Christ, because Christ was willing to come to this earth, that is something that should create in us a grateful spirit and a grateful heart. All right? So that's what we talked about last week. Tonight we're going to move on. We're going to look at just a couple of verses. As we get into the message tonight, let me just say this. It is not by design. It was not by plan. But uh, you'll probably get out early tonight, okay? So if you need to get somewhere in a few moments, just know you will not be late. Unless you've got a flat tire out in the parking lot or something. It won't be my fault. That's all I'm saying. But tonight we're going to look at a couple of verses, and I trust that this will be a help to us. Also know this, that tonight whenever we leave, you will not probably say, Man, I needed that. But we need it, okay? We, we need the understanding because... Uh, the introduction is going to take just a couple of minutes, so be patient. But I know for myself, and I have heard others say, that Hebrews is a difficult portion of Scripture. And so it's good for us to understand why these words would have been written, maybe not because we needed them or we need them as much as they needed them back then, but I would like for us to have a working understanding as much as possible of Hebrews and why certain things were recorded on the behalf of the audience. And so that being said, tonight I want us to think about this truth. I want us to think about this idea. I know I've talked about it to an extent, 
uh, in recent messages, I'm sure. But at some point in life, we come to understand this, we come to realize this, that there are certain things in life we must know. You understand that? We come to these realizations, we come to these moments in our lives where we, we finally clue into this truth, I have to know that. See, as a child, and they begin to go to school, or when they begin to go to school, they're probably ignorant of how the whole school system works and how the whole education process works. But even as a child, they began to pick up on this truth. There are certain things I need to know. There are certain things that I need to have grounded and established in this particular subject, or I'm not going to do so well. So if you were to talk to a student and say in this particular class, are there certain things you just need to know? I think many of the kids would say, yes, there are certain things that I need to know. I would imagine, as I've touched on this before, that there are certain things about your job you need to know. You may not need to know about this. You may not need to know about this. You may not need to know about this. But when it comes to this, you better have a good understanding of what's happening here. And the illustrations could just keep flowing. I don't need to do that tonight for you to get the point. I just want us to think about this truth, that in life there are certain things we better know. Well, the same would be true in our spiritual lives. There are some things as it relates to Christianity. There are certain things that relate to the Scripture that you may not need to know in order to really live the Christian life the way it is intended to be lived, but there are some things you better know. Someone says, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. I would suspect that most of you tonight probably could not stand and give a clear presentation of the book of Song of Solomon and what all it means. You ever read through Song of Solomon? You probably wouldn't even be comfortable approaching the subject. Now my point is this. You may not understand Song of Solomon, but you'll be able to live the Christian life and do so fairly well. You this evening may not be able to stand up and give a clear presentation of eschatology. But you can still live a Christian life with the basic understanding of eschatology. But there are some things in the Christian life you better know. Because without this, you are going to have some serious problems in your spiritual life. And so it's with that in mind that verses 1 and 2 that we're going to be looking at are are written. And and you'll see why I'm saying this in a couple of moments. But I, I want to remind us of this, okay? Who the audience is of the writer. The audience is fellow Jews. It is fellow Hebrews. And what we know is this, is by the time the book of Hebrews has been written, the law and the works and everything under the Old Covenant has been around for at least somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 years. So what we understand then about Judaism, what we understand about the Old Covenant, what we understand about the law would be this, is that it is not some new trend in religion. 
This is not something that had just popped up in the last couple of years and people were getting excited about Judaism and, 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 and the Old Covenant and things of that nature. That is not at all the case. This had been around for hundreds of years, if not a thousand years or even more. And so here is what we know that the Jews were very stooped and they were very much accustomed to their religious way of life. We cannot lose sight of how ingrained the Old Covenant would have been in the lives of the audience that the writer is addressing. That is everything they had known, that is everything they had experienced, that is everything they had practiced up until the moment that Christ shows up on the scene. And when Christ shows up on the scene and He is eventually crucified and He is laid in the tomb for three days and three days later He rises from the grave, here is what you and I understand. Immediately that changed everything. There was no transition time. There was no you know, easing into this smoothly. It was just one day we've got the old covenant and the very next day we've got the new covenant. And now all of a sudden this new teaching, this new doctrine, this new theology, it is being introduced to the Jews. You and I, if we're honest, we can understand that that would have been hard for the average Jew to just say, oh, okay and turn from everything they had been taught all their lives, and now just walk away from the sacrifices and the offerings and the temple and everything they had known, we can understand why that would have been a struggle for them to turn from that and to just place their faith completely and entirely and simply in the work of Jesus Christ. So when you think about the struggle that could have been present in the hearts and minds of so many people, then it makes sense that the writer would be so methodical and deliberate and repetitious in his approach in dealing with the believers, or dealing with the, the Jews and the Hebrews that he was writing to. And so this evening, as we look in verse number 1, here's what he says. He says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Well, what has he spoken? We'll go back and read the first seven chapters and you'll know what's been spoken. Some of you, if you're like me, you could go back and read the first seven chapters and say to yourself once again, now what did that mean? Because I've already forgot what I've preached. And if I've already forgot what I've preached, you've already forgotten what I've preached. And so you and I might say, okay, now, now what are the things that he has spoken? Okay, he's given seven chapters to work up to this point, And he makes this statement. He says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read the word sum, I think of addition. Add end, add end, sum. That's exactly what y'all thought of, right? Addition. Okay, that's, that's what some of you thought of. Okay, now, the, the sum is the total. All right, that is what all this equals. And so whenever I first read this, I thought, okay, well, he's using a math illustration. And, you know, that, that's what he's saying. This is what all this equals up to. Now, this doesn't surprise some of you, but it's not as though the word sum today could mean the same thing that sum meant some 4, 000, or 400 years ago. 
All right, and so whenever you look up the word some in a Bible dictionary, here's what you discover that it means. It means this, that it is the chief or the most important thing. So what he is saying is this. It it doesn't all add up to this. What he is saying is, of everything that we have spoken to this point, this is the chief. This is the most important thing. It's like he is saying to his audience, Friends, this is something you must know. You may not have understood everything I have written. You may not have understood everything you have heard. You may still have questions about this topic or this subject or or, or this item of theology. You may not understand everything, but you need to know this. Because this is the most important thing that I have shared with you thus far. So what does he do? Well, he does what he has done already on several occasions. He begins speaking of the high priest. He says, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven." Now remember, the Jews would have been very familiar with the idea of a high priest. They would have been very familiar, as we'll see in verse number 2, with the idea of the sanctuary and the tabernacle. Okay, This is terminology that would have been clear and easy for them to understand. So he says in verse number 1 that we have a high priest. We as believers now, we possess a high priest. And he says that he is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven. Now, what has he just said? He has just said this again, that Christ now is on the right hand of the Father or the majesty in verse number 1 in heaven. Now, you and I, we read that and we say, okay, well, yeah, we're familiar with that. And so what we'll see in the next couple of weeks as we work our way through the passage is he is going to remind them of the work that Christ is doing as he sits on the right hand of the Father. And that is this, is that he is interceding on behalf of the individuals on this earth. He is the intercessor. He is the mediator. He is the one who stands between mankind and God. It is through Christ that man is able to get to God and to know God and to have this personal relationship with him. And so he says in verse number 1 that Christ is seated or he is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven. And you and I sit here and we say, well, yeah, okay. I mean, we understand that. We've heard that all of our lives. Yes, we've heard that all of our lives. They had not heard that all of their lives. So he is emphasizing to them and he is reiterating this to them. This is the chiefest thing. This is the most important thing. That we have a high priest that is set at the right hand of the throne. Now you and I go, okay, 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 we got it. Quit yelling at us about it. Okay, I'm not going to yell at you for a moment at least, okay? I read something this week that got my attention, and I thought, why haven't I ever heard that before? Why haven't I ever thought of that before? And it's one of those moments where you say to yourself, well, dummy, if you had just thought about that, you could have understood things so much better. Keep in mind, please, that the work of the Old Covenant 
it could only accomplish so much in the life of the individual. You remember what he said in verse number 18 of chapter 7? He said, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and profitableness thereof, for the law made nothing perfect. In verse number 7, he said, The law made nothing perfect. The law could only do so much for the Jew. The law had limitations in what it could accomplish. And in the life of the Jew under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, what did it require? It required the same practice over and over again, year after year after year after year. Men and women bringing their offerings and their sacrifices to the temple. And as good as it was and the purpose that it served, it was incapable of completing anything to the uttermost like salvation could. Now think about the terminology here. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty or the, the, the right hand of God in the heavens, and we say, well, yeah, 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 we understand that. Okay, think about, for the nation of Israel, how many temples there were. How many temples were there? Just one. How many people made up the Jewish nation? Well, we don't know, but it would have been in the millions. Okay, millions of people would observe their religious activity by way of sacrifices and offerings in one location. Can you imagine how busy that spot was? Millions. I mean, if you think about it for just a moment, imagine if there was only one place in Pampa where all your religious activity could be addressed properly. That would be a busy place, would it not? We have over 60 of those locations to process the spiritual needs of people here in town. So imagine if we only had one of them to take care and address all the spiritual routines and rituals and the sacrifices and, and things of that nature. Well, that would be a busy place in itself for just eighteen to 20,000 people. But imagine if you are servicing some 2 million to 3 million Jews who would bring offerings and sacrifices. Well, it would be a never-ending process. Now, this is something I read this week, and I thought, well, why hadn't I thought of that? And it's obvious that I hadn't thought of it because I hadn't given much thought to it, I guess. But if you look at how the temple was laid out, and you look at the furniture that was in the temple, here's what you discover. There were no seats for which the priest to sit on or in. Think about that. Now certainly outside of the temple, there would have been places where the priest could have sat down and got some rest, etc. 
But within the temple where the sacrifices took place, within that area where the men and the women, the families would bring their sacrifices, there was no place for the priest to sit. And as one commentator pointed out, that the reason in part that there was no place for the priest to sit was this, because the work of the priest never stopped. They were always offering sacrifices on behalf of the people for different things, whether it be in the tabernacle or whether it be in the temple. They were always doing something on behalf of the sins and uh, transgressions of mankind. Now, you and I, we sit here and say, okay, well, what's the big deal? We have such an high priest who is what? Who is set? What does that mean? It means he is sitting down as our high priest. You think the Jews didn't start putting all these pieces together going, oh, you know, we've never seen the high priest sit down before. You know, I mean, when the high priest was doing his thing, it was a, it was a constant motion. And the other priests, what they were doing, it was always constant activity. And there was always someone in there moving about, servicing the people who would come in with their sacrifices and their offerings. And now the writer is saying to the Jews, listen, you got to understand something. That we have, we possess such an high priest, the one who could go into the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice for us. And he said, as a result of what the high priest has done for us, he is now seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven what is he telling his fellow Jews he is telling them this the work is completed the work is done the one who did the last sacrifice listen when he made the sacrifice of himself that completed it that ended it there is no more need for activity in our lives by way of the temple or the uh, 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 the, the tabernacle, whatever Jew that you want to consider, it is done. It is completed. It is finished. He's saying, you've you got to know this. <laughs> My fellow Jews, you have got to know this. That everything that needed to be done has been done. Every, every sacrifice that has ever needed to be given. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, that took care of every sacrifice that would ever be needed again. And so there's no more need for activity. There's no more need for moving about. There's no more need for scurrying about. No, 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 no. Christ took care of it. And our high priest, though you and I deny it, we would look at that and go, oh, yeah, yeah. He is saying to them, you've got to understand something. It's done. It is finished. It is complete. No more need for that whatsoever. You've got to know it. So then he says in verse number 2 that he was a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. 
a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. What does it mean for something to be pitched? It means this, for something to be fastened and built. Now he speaks in verse number 2 of the sanctuary and the tabernacle. Again, two things that a Jew would have been very familiar with. The tabernacle that they would have been familiar with by way of history that traveled with the people in Israel as they were making their way to the promised land there in the wilderness. They would have been familiar with the tabernacle that was set there until Solomon built the original temple. They were familiar with what the tabernacle was and they were familiar with what the sanctuary was. And here's what we know of both the tabernacle and the sanctuary. That is where God chose to make his presence known or to make his presence manifest. But we also know this, that there was no such a building, tabernacle or sanctuary, that could contain the presence of God entirely and completely. It's as though the Lord said, here's what I'm going to do. I will designate the sanctuary and a tabernacle for my presence, but God knew uh, it's not as though that can contain me. I know that this isn't real exciting to us, but think about a Jew for a moment. Here's the writer, and he says, He is a servant of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. What does it mean for something to be the true tabernacle or the true sanctuary? It means this, the genuine, authentic dwelling place of the Lord. God's presence may be represented here, and, and this may be hallowed ground, and, and this may be sacred territory. But see, where Christ is, that is the genuine, authentic presence of the Lord. So where is Christ at? Well, he's not just in an area over here that represents and reflects and, and holds a portion of the presence of God. No, he is in the true tabernacle. He is in the true, genuine, legitimate, authentic presence of God that you claim to serve, fellow Jews. That is where Christ is at. He is in the presence of God at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he is seated because the work is done. And he is a minister in the presence of God. Again, going back to the idea that he is now our intercessor and he is our mediator. And he is the one who serves on our behalf between us and God. My fellow Jews, the writer says, if you don't get anything else, you have got to know this. Jews, if, if anything has confused you, if anything has stumped you, if anything has kind of made you say, huh, to this point, that's okay. But what you must get squared away in your mind is this. We now have a high priest whose work is done, it is finished, and it is completed. It does what the old covenant and the old law could not do. It is completely taken care of, and Christ now serves 
in the true, legitimate, authentic presence of the Lord that was made and designed and fashioned and put together by God and not what man designed and fashioned and built on this earth. Now, obviously, you and I have no idea what the response of the readers would have been some 2,000 years ago. But if they were already saved, they had to read verses 1 and 2 and say, praise the Lord. I mean, can you imagine how thrilling that would have been? It is so good to be reminded... I don't have to kill another bullock. I don't have to kill another calf. We don't have to bring another sacrifice to, to a temple. We, we don't have to do that. Praise the Lord. The work is done. The work is completed. The work is finished. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done because you are seated. You're not still trying to accomplish what needs to be done. That would have to be thrilling to a person who was new to the faith and it had to be, I don't know how to say it, but it just had to be one of those in-your-face moments for the one who was still wavering. You know, I hear what you've said about Christ. I know what you've said about His work. I know what you've said about the crucifixion. I know what you've said, but I know how I was raised. I know what my parents told me. I know what my grandparents told me. I know what we've observed all these years. I know I, I, I know that as well as I, I know what you're saying. And the writer would just say this, Listen, you've got to get this. You've got to understand this. You've got to know this. This is the most important thing that I can convey to you, the work is done completely and entirely. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He is where God is truly, not just where He decided to manifest His presence. He is where God is, and He serves in that capacity right now as we speak. Now, I know you know this. I know that you know this as well as I know this. I got it. I've got it. I've got it. I can sit here tonight and say, now listen, we've got to get this. We've got to know this. And you'd say, Brother Kyle, I know it already. Okay. But the most important thing that we need to know is this. The work has already been done by Jesus Christ. Whenever he died on the cross, he died on the cross for all mankind. The work has been done and the work is complete. And our Heavenly Father now is in heaven. And Christ our Savior sits at the right hand of the Father. And, and you and I, we have the privilege of knowing the Father because of the completed work of Christ and he is in the presence of the Father right now, making intercession for us, mediating on our behalf. That is a wonderful thing, and we've got to be reminded of this. And, and, and maybe you don't need to be reminded of it, but sometimes mankind needs to be reminded of this, and that is simply this. There is no need for anything else. We got that? Well, you know, I was raised, and, and I was raised thinking we need this. It doesn't matter how you were raised. The Bible says that this is what you've got to know. 
Well, well I, I was raised kind of teach, you know, being taught this, and, and I remember them teaching me this, and you know, I needed to say this, and needed to pray this, and needed to go through this. Okay, that may have been how you were taught, but, but that's not what we need. The only thing we need is the work of Christ. Christ has already done it, so therefore the work is complete. And I say that tonight, maybe not for your own benefit, but here's what I know. You have the, the opportunity, and you may have the chance at some point in your life to talk to someone, and here is what they are still clinging to. Here's what they are still holding on to. Something they were taught in the past. Something that they were told. You have to do this. You have to pray this. You have to give this. And you need to be able to take them to some place in the Scripture like Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and just say this. I'd like to show you something. I know that you're not a Jew. I get that. I understand that maybe you're Catholic. I understand that maybe you're Jehovah Witness. I understand that maybe you're a Mormon. I understand that maybe you're you're free will Baptist and you think you've got to work your way to heaven. I understand But I want to show you from the Scripture that the work's already been done. And there is nothing else to be done. And you've got to know it. And if you and I know that, and we have that grounded and established in our hearts and minds, then we can look to someone who may be struggling we might be able to take him to the Word of God and just say this. I'd like to just show you from the Word of God that no matter what the ritual is in the past, no matter what the routine has been in the past, it's taken care of. And all you have to do is place your faith in the high priest who took care of all of our sins that day on Calvary. It really might and it really could be a help to you in dealing with someone in the future but we've got to know it before we can share it with anyone else. All right? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. Lord, I want to say thank you for the the picture that was drawn in this passage, a picture that I have read over I don't know how many times and not understood. I have been ignorant of what the Jews would have known and what they would have been aware of, and I've never considered how powerful this message or this text could have been to the life of a Jew back in their day. And God, I pray that you'd help us tonight to rejoice and to celebrate in the fact that the work is complete, the work is done. And Lord, maybe we just need to see it from a different light tonight. That maybe we've gotten so used to it that we don't appreciate it like we should. And so, Lord, I I say thank you tonight for your finished, completed work on our behalf and the fact that you serve in the presence of God right now. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.